we, we might get started, um, I think. Thanks very much for, for coming out on a, on a sunny Friday evening uh, to this week's Oxford Transitional Justice Research Seminar. It's a, a real pleasure to have with us this evening uh, Juan Mendes, who I know is already very familiar to, to many of you, so uh, he won't need a great introduction, um, I don't think, because you'll know most of the details of his, his very distinguished career. Um, this is one of Juan's final stops on what has been a bit of a merry-go-round tour around the UK this week. Um, and OTJR is very pleased to, to be collaborating on Juan's trip this week um, with the, the Essex Transitional Justice Network, uh, who really were the principal actors in, in getting Juan over here. So we're, we're very uh, grateful to the, to the Essex people, Clara and Diana in particular, for helping to, to bring Juan to the UK, um, and also to Lars Waldorf and his team um, at the Centre for Applied Human Rights up at the University of York too. So it's been really great to, to work with you guys this week. Um, Juan, of course, uh, was a, a political prisoner uh, in, in, in Argentina. Uh, he then spent 15 years at, at Human Rights Watch. He's had more roles and more guises at a high level than, than I can really uh, summarise for you here. Um, but I guess he's very familiar to many of you as a, as a special advisor to Kofi Annan on the issue of the prevention of genocide. Uh, he's also the uh, President Emeritus of the International Centre for Transitional Justice. Um, just because he doesn't have enough to do on the side, he's currently the special advisor to the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, uh, as well as being a visiting professor of law at the American University in, in Washington, D.C. Um, a sign, I think, of Juan's breadth of experience and expertise is that at each of the locations that he's been speaking at this week, he's talked on a completely different topic. Um, We've already milked him here in Oxford for a little round table with some of you this afternoon in a, in a, in a slightly more intimate gathering. Um, and that was on the issue of, of prevention and, and, um, and, and justice. He's actually going to talk on something completely different uh, now. Uh, Juan's going to speak to us on the topic of transitional justice uh, and development. Um, Juan, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thanks very much. Thank you. successful uh, tour that uh, you uh, invited me to. Uh, I've also said, and I want to say it again, that uh, I'm really excited about this idea of joining forces to do uh, research in an area that there's so much uh, um, open fields for research and so many unanswered questions that, that deserve uh, very serious uh, academic but also applied academic treatment. And, um, I only hope that my visit will uh, help uh, you know, disseminate this great idea outside of the United Kingdom and perhaps uh, get some other universities to emulate all of you. So th thanks again very much uh, for the privilege uh, to talk to you about this topic. I have to say that transitional justice has been my field for a long time. I mean, uh, uh, you know, spinning off of my work uh, human rights more generally, um, but development is not. So uh, I want to uh, issue that caveat f first uh, so that um, uh, especially I, I, I imagine amongst you there are some who are really specialists in development so that you um, excuse my ignorance uh, on the subject uh, from the start. 
nevertheless, I think there are some very important uh, connections that have to be made. And, um, and I've written uh, precisely because I'm not all that familiar with development theory. Um, I took the, uh, the liberty to, uh, to write this up because I don't want to be uh, imprecise or, or, uh, or worse. And so, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to read it. And I tried to make it uh, uh, as interesting as possible. <laughs> it is far too easy to say that justice and development should naturally work together because they both aim to achieve improvement in people's lives and particularly in the lives of individuals and collectivities that have long been amongst the most vulnerable and least powerful. But we all know that in practice, the efforts to pursue objectives of development and justice can present us with difficult choices and the need to establish priorities and resolve crucial dilemmas. The fact itself that we can identify dilemmas is already a sign of progress. Human rights and the pursuit of justice have now reached a level of centrality to international cooperation and more broadly to the international community such that the legitimate right to justice, and I use that between quotation marks, of victims of mass atrocity cannot be ignored. Conversely, the human rights movement does not now simply demand justice without regard to other potential effects of those demands. It is a sign of its maturity as a movement that it now has to reckon with the relationship of justice to the pursuit of other equally important values, such as development. At the risk of oversimplifying, the dilemma is as follows. How much should we insist in the realization of justice for the human rights violations of a recent past if such insistence puts in jeopardy our ability to execute programs of international cooperation that can raise the standard of living of huge masses of population that are not responsible for the atrocities and who have themselves been victimized by that recent past, however indirectly. In recent years, we have discussed a very similar dilemma with regards to the pursuit of justice when it may affect the outcome of peace negotiations to put an end to a conflict. That apparent conflict between peace and justice, I always avoid the label of peace versus justice, bears resemblance to the debates that occupy us today. In a way, peace and justice issues tend to be more focused and urgent because the outcome results in either the continuation of a bloody struggle in a specific territory with a predictable cost in lives of innocent civilians or an unsatisfactory resolution to the conflict that literally allows mass murderers to get away with their crimes. A slightly different version of this dilemma assumes that preventing new violations is more important than settling accounts for past violations and that insistence on the latter hampers efforts at prevention. And yet, in the final analysis, in peace and justice, in prevention and justice, and in development and justice, we ought to keep in mind that the obstacle to the re realization of all three important values is the attitude of certain key actors who have a stake in the prevalence of impunity for major crimes and are willing to hold hostage both peace and development if that assures them of impunity. In that sense, we should do well to remind ourselves that what those leaders are doing is blackmailing the rest of us. Of course, the basic fact that blackmail is at the core of this dilemma does not automatically mean that justice must prevail under all circumstances. If we were simply to walk away from blackmailers, we would leave their innocent victims, as well as millions of other indirect victims, to their own devices and even without protection. 
Besides, in each instance, there will be a multiplicity of actors, and the degree of good or bad faith in the pursuit of their objectives should not be reduced to a Manichaean choice of pro and anti-justice attitudes. Especially in transitional situations, successor governments and their supporters may have a variety of reasons to insist on letting bygones be bygones. We disagree with them also for many reasons, but that does not mean that we throw them into the category of blackmailers and perpetrators of abuse. For reasons of expertise, of my expertise, these comments will be presented through the lens of transitional justice. This is not to deny that development specialists themselves will undoubtedly be able to contribute unique and rich insights to the project of delineating the relationship between transitional justice and development. Rather, in recognizing my own limitations, I hope these comments, informed by my experience working on transitional justice, will contribute to the critical conversation on how these two projects to promote a thriving human society may inform one another. In order to begin the process of identifying the relationships between transitional justice and development, it is necessary to understand what exactly we mean by both of these terms. Indeed, both transitional justice and development have grown into specialized fields, each with a corresponding group of field practitioners, critical theorists, and advocates. Transitional justice has become a term of art that describes the practices that societies put in place when they reckon with the legacy of widespread or systematic human rights violations. Its purpose is to break the cycle of impunity, to seek and disclose the truth, to offer reparations to the victims, and to reform institutions so that they will not in the future be the instruments of mass atrocities. Those societal experiences have, in the last quarter century, resulted in emerging norms in international law about what states owe to victims of war crimes and crimes against humanity. First and foremost, transitional justice is not, quote unquote, justice light. <coughs> Under its guise, some leaders have proposed the avoidance of justice by rejecting entirely the criminal prosecution of major crimes and instead engaging only in truth-telling exercises or payment of reparations or some symbolic gestures. We in the transitional justice field do favor truth-telling and appropriate reparations, but when they are offered as alternatives to prosecution, they certainly, uh, they constitute thinly veiled mechanisms of impunity. When it comes to genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity, the prosecution of at least those bearing the greatest responsibility for them is not a negotiable demand. It is an imperative of law, of morality, and of sound policy. Second, transitional justice is not a highly specialized corner of the human rights movement dealing with constructive efforts to realize some of its goals. It is rather the effort at the realization of the movement's ideals of justice in specific, context-laden, culturally relevant circumstances. It follows then that transitional justice practitioners are in the difficult business of recognizing and addressing all the obstacles laying in the path of justice without giving up on the ultimate goal of realizing it. Third, we have struggled with the inadequacy and even misleading nature of the term transitional justice. It does not attempt to qualify the nature of the justice to be obtained. And its reference to transition is mostly historical. In fact, the principles to be implemented are universal and always present. And the state obligations that we seek to uphold apply equally to transitional regimes as well as to all other governments. The practices and policies that we now identify with transitional justice 
emerged in the context of societies abandoning repressive regimes and struggling to recover democracy. And that has had a definite, definitive impact on the doctrinal background of transitional justice. We aim to build a strong foundation for democracy and the rule of law by dealing effectively and honestly with a past that has been the antithesis of democracy and the rule of law. By preserving the memory of the abuses and by holding perpetrators accountable, we signal a clear break with that past and we set our fledgling democracy on a strong foundation. Eventually, these principles were applied to different transitions, those from conflict to peace rather than from dictatorship to democracy. The principles still proved useful, especially if what was sought was not a temporary lull in the fighting, but a lasting peace, because in the latter case, it seemed important to develop institutions and mechanisms that we identify with proper distribution of power and therefore with democracy and the rule of law. The rule of law is not only the proper functioning of institutions and an adequate balance of power between branches of government. It represents the achievement of the democratic ideal if it provides a framework for participation by all in the affairs of common interests. The rule of law creates and sustains a framework for the creation and flourishing of independent organizations of civil society that channel participation in the pursuit of the common good on a daily basis and far beyond the electoral exercise. In this fashion, the rule of law, favored from the start with a healthy reckoning of legacies of abuse, generates expanded participation not only in politics, but also in the economy, a key goal of human development initiatives. But undoubtedly, transitions from conflict to peace added other dimensions. One was the urgency of silencing the guns and of offering the possibility to insurgents of pursuing their political objectives through peaceful means. And that was not easily done if they perceived the outcome of negotiations to be that after signing they would be marched off to jail. Secondly, if the conflict had pitted ethnic, religious, or, or racial communities against each other, it was necessary to conceive of additional mechanisms of intercommunal reconciliation so that the blame for crimes committed against one community in the name of another was not attributed to innocent descendants in an ever-expanding cycle of revenge. In those cases, some have felt that doing justice was insufficient or worse, counterproductive. Instead, reconciliation should be pursued in various ways that excluded criminal accountability. We beg to differ. Reconciliation through intercommunal talks is undoubtedly necessary, but it will not be achieved without a measure of reckoning with the abuses committed in the name of ethnic rivalry. In fact, genuine reconciliation is only possible after atonement from the culprits, recognition of shared responsibilities, and an honest coming to grips with a painful legacy of abuse. The third new dimension is even more germane to our conversation today. The need to engage in the reconstruction of war-torn societies and to create conditions for that reconstruction to engage the international community in successful development cooperation. This factor has brought into sharp relief that transitional justice is primarily a way to deal with major attacks on the right to life, liberty, and the security of person, precisely because the abuses it covers are torture, extrajudicial execution, disappearances, and prolonged arbitrary detention. If committed in the course of armed conflict, such acts and others like that, like targeting civilians, are war crimes. If they are part of a pattern of repressive action against the civilian population outside of conflict, 
they are crimes against humanity. It is in relation to those crimes, if they have been, if they have been widespread or systematic, that international law has developed precise standards regarding the obligation to prosecute and punish perpetrators, to seek and disclose the truth about them, to offer reparations to their victims, and to reform the institutions used as their vehicle. Transitional justice does not, does not seem to have answers for the violations of economic, social, and cultural rights, the rights that are generally fulfilled with appropriate and effective development policies. It would be unfair to conclude, however, that transitional justice practitioners are oblivious to the socioeconomic background against which crimes against humanity take place. One should only read some of the major documents now known as the various Truth Commission reports to note a clear effort to link those crimes to the policies of exclusion and negative income distribution that are always at the root of violations of economic, social, and cultural rights. As those reports show, often the killings and atrocities are committed precisely to impose on the population economic policies that deny them the enjoyment of economic, social, and cultural rights or to install a program of economic development based in regressive distribution of wealth. It is undeniable, however, that the techniques and mechanisms, prosecutions, truth-seeking, reparations, and institutional reforms associated with transitional justice were designed to deal with murder, imprisonment, and torture on a large scale. Such mechanisms are probably inadequate to understand and eventually reverse practices of socioeconomic exclusion and, and marginalization, because these mechanisms are designed to identify culpable individuals who, at the helm of institutions, commit those atrocities in order to, uh, in order to hold them accountable. Violations of economic, social, and cultural rights, in contrast, are attributable to policies and practice, some practices sometimes deliberate, but often based on neglect and irresponsibility, not direct personal blame. Nevertheless, because all human rights are universal, <coughs> indivisible, and interdependent, there is an important discussion going on today among transitional justice practitioners as to how to better account for violations of economic, social, and cultural rights in our initiatives and practices. This is a gap that we all acknowledge. In any event, the good intentions behind these efforts to bridge it do not obscure the difficulty of simply applying mechanisms that are tried and true for violations of civil and political rights to the, to the legacies of neglect and abuse of economic, social, and cultural rights. Since development theory aims precisely at finding the best way to realize economic, social, and cultural rights for those segments, segments of the population deprived of them, we can certainly hope that constructive discussions like the one that gathers us here today can help in this endeavor. <coughs> in the same way that there are several conceptions of what transitional justice is about, there are various ways to understand what is meant by development. Indeed, it is unlikely that all those engaged in development work or thinking could agree upon the boundaries and contents of the field. These varying and often intersecting understandings of development provide for a range of interactions with the different notions of transitional justice. At one level, development is concerned with economic growth. Often related to the idea of growth <coughs> is a concept of economic distribution, changing the way in which financial resources are allocated across populations. An underlying assumption of the economic growth theory of development is that poverty, hunger, disease, various other social ills are causally related to a country's lack of financial resources. 
Another theory of development is referred to as human development. This idea was first coined by the United Nations Development Program in 1990. Largely in response to the perceived failure of the emphasis during the 1980s on economic growth that did not capture the human and social costs of various development efforts, the human development paradigm emerged as an alternative way of imagining growth. As described by leading development theorist Amartya Sen, human development concerns itself with the richness of human life rather than with myopically focusing only uh, on the richness of the economy. The operational definition of human development set forth by UNDP provides that, and I quote, human development is a process of enlarging people's choices. Enlarging people's choices is achieved by expanding human capabilities and functions. At all levels of development, the three essential capabilities for human development are for people to lead long and healthy lives, to be knowledgeable, and to have a decent standard of living. If these basic capabilities are not achieved, many choices are simply not available, and many opportunities remain inaccessible. But the realm of human development goes further. <coughs> Essential areas of choice, highly valued by people, range from political, economic, and social opportunities for being creative and productive to enjoying self-respect, empowerment, and a sense of belonging to a community. The concept of human development is a holistic one, putting people at the center of all aspects of the development process. That's the end of the quote by UNDP. I want to explore uh, some areas of overlap between transitional justice and development. One important way in which development and transitional justice intersect is in the shared context of both uh, projects. At the most basic level, both development and transitional justice attempt to facilitate the growth of a weak socioeconomic network. As has been noted, transitional justice does not take place in a vacuum, but instead in a post-conflict environment marked by efforts to reconstruct and develop the country as a whole. It is irrefutable that there is a correlation between low levels of development and countries where we see the greatest need for transitional justice in a conventional sense. Underdevelopment may sometimes be a cause of conflict or violation that gives rise to the need for transitional justice. This is evident in situations where, for example, unequal distribution of resources instigates conflict between groups or where it is used as a weapon by one group against another. At a minimum, such underdevelopment can be a factor that contributes to the need for transitional justice. Perhaps a lack of development prevents the parties from reconciling differences or even perpetuates situations of violence and abuse. Transitional justice and development are two projects that are directed towards the overarching goal of transforming societies. Both development and transitional justice are concerned with reconciliation. From the development perspective, Reconciliation provides for an end to a situation of conflict and marginalization that undermines growth. Indeed, both strive towards creating a robust regime of inclusive participatory uh, uh, citizenship. <coughs> this would create a system of community-driven development. Additionally, to the extent that growth of an effective governance system, including the legal sector, is an objective of development programming the field of development can contribute direct monetary support as well as other resources, training, capacity building, etc., to transitional justice. In terms of strategies, uh, the, 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 the clear overlap is in, in, in institutional reform. 
In various contexts, development endeavors are concerned with establishing a strong foundation for democracy and rule of law. As world leaders recognized in the United Nations Millennium Declaration of 2000, a successful strategy for the eradication of poverty and the promotion of development depends on good governance within each country. Intuitively, the success of development programs depends on the existence of economic and social institutions that can administer development in a sustainable fashion. For transitional justice, these same institutions are necessary to investigate, prosecute, and punish violators. Often the cornerstone of transitional justice, pursuing formal accountability for violators through criminal prosecutions, has the potential to overlap with development priorities. Prosecutions demonstrate to the society that violations will not be tolerated, and in so doing, fortifies a network of social actors that will participate in development. Aside from their symbolic value, prosecutions may assist in removing from power and from, posi from positions of influence those responsible for atrocities against <coughs> their own people, which may have a role in restoring popular faith in the legal system. Additionally, although economic crimes such as corruption have yet to be the main focus of any transitional justice process, it is possible that prosecution of such attacks against national development could play an important role in linking transitional justice and development. Tra transitional justice sometimes encompasses some sort of truth-telling process, either through trials or through a Truth and Reconciliation Commission or some informal process. This can be critical for development because it helps set the record straight on what caused the conflict. An accurate history of what caused the conflict prevents narratives of ethnic hatred or otherwise daunting social divisions from being constructed when an equal distribution of resources was actually the cause of the conflict. This may facilitate the larger objective of reconciliation. And in terms of reparations, by making victims of violation feel whole again, transitional justice minimizes feelings of marginalization and brings citizens back into the political and social folds. In particular, reparation represents recognition by society and the newly constituted legal order that wrongs were done and an attempt to right those wrongs. In a tangible way, reparations promote development by providing the receiver with something to invest in society, usually money that will be invested or spent in a growing economy. Beyond this physical effect, the symbolic value of reparations helps make victims feel as though they are participants in society, which can lead to a greater sense of ownership over the development process. Now I, I want to discuss some tensions between transitional justice and development. Despite the various areas in which transitional justice and development overlap, and perhaps even because of them, there are sometimes tensions between the two endeavors. Without coordination and cooperation, the competing needs of development and transitional justice may result in some sort of normative hierarchy or prioritization, which undermines the necessity for viewing both projects as part of a necessary whole. Working with a definition of development as positive peace, attempts to pursue justice may conflict with efforts to secure peace. Justice initiatives are seen by some as jeopardizing international cooperation that can raise standards of living for entire populations, turning the tension into a debate between justice for a few versus peace for many. This argument is made particularly when transitional justice takes the form of prosecutions, which are generally adversarial in nature and may be seen as highly political. A clear example of this tension can be drawn from the situation in Sudan 
following the indictment by uh, the International Criminal Court of President Omar al-Bashir. Immediately upon receiving word of, of the uh, arrest warrant and stand, uh, uh, President al-Bashir banished almost all of the aid groups from Darfur. In a post-conflict situation, one could imagine a similar situation where pursuing accountability for those in power may have negative repercussions for development organizations, at least in the short term. Even with its weaknesses, transitional justice can offer some way out of the conundrum of development and justice, just as it does, in my view, contribute some solutions to the dilemmas of peace and justice. <clears throat> its vision is for a comprehensive, holistic view of justice without losing sight of the need to break the cycle of impunity for the most serious crimes. Its mechanisms for truth-telling, reparations, and institutional reform are complementary to the efforts at criminal prosecutions that will always be limited and perhaps unsatisfactory, <coughs> especially when there are many victims whose cases will never be completely covered by judicial means. The combination of judicial and non-judicial approaches is holistic, not only in the sense that it diminishes the impunity gap, but also in the sense that it can cover more aptly the multiple ways in which victims have suffered. In addition, by definition, transitional justice mechanisms are to be designed and executed in consultation with all stakeholders and in participatory, inclusive approach. Because of this, reckoning with the past under the principles of transitional justice is potentially more conducive to social peace and to building a strong foundation for democracy than a dogged insistence in criminal punishment as the sole answer. It goes without saying that transitional justice is a rich and diversified series of responses to mass atrocities, but it will also require some concessions and compromise, at least in those places where the future <coughs> of development initiatives may be at issue. It is, however, a mistake to see mutual concessions as a trade-off, because this term carries the connotation of one side or the other having to abandon objectives and principles. Or perhaps we can think of a trade-off in which both sides have something to gain and something to lose rather than absolute defeat. If so, the question is not whether there should be a trade-off between justice and development. Rather, we must ask ourselves, what is it that will be traded off and in exchange for what? At such a stage, in any event, it may be necessary to recall that there is no reason why development and justice cannot go hand in hand and in fact reinforce each other. <clears throat> Reasons for the dilemma, if there is one, are always contingent and context-specific, context not absolute. Therefore, it is better to think of ways to remove the contingent obstacles rather than to start from the premise that the twin objectives of development and justice are incompatible. The point of departure must be the presumption certainly rebuttable or defeasible, that development and justice ordinarily do sustain and reinforce each other, not that they are in principle opposed. If the analysis of plausible trade-offs focuses on the contingent and contextual, it is possible to envision a constructive debate about priorities, sequence of policy options, and timing of different measures. In that fashion, there will not be a complete trade-off of justice for the sake of development, nor vice versa. There will be, however, options to do things in a, an, as harmonious a manner as possible between the exigencies of development and the exigencies of justice. <coughs> this will include some delayed expectations and some reconciliation of competing demands for the sake of policies that benefit the largest numbers of the poor and vulnerable, 
without ignoring the legitimate demands of justice of the victims of crimes against humanity. In the post-conflict environment, resources are likely to be scarce. The country experiencing the need for both development and justice is likely to be weak and without the financial resources to provide for all these needs. Foreign assistance and international community funds are often directed towards both types of projects, which may lead to competition for resources that are necessarily limited. Transitional justice may place demands on development resources that are necessary for basic services, such as food and shelter. Both the discourses of transitional justice and of development may encounter tensions in associating with one another. To begin with, development often has negative connotations, especially in the countries in which transitional justice initiatives are taking place. Despite the intentions of development practitioners, projects are often seen as foreign controlled or tied to unsavory policies or as opportunities for corruption, such as with World Bank assistance or loans from the International Monetary Fund. Because of the tendency to lump together many types of development initiatives, transitional justice may suffer from being too closely aligned with uh, certain development projects. Similarly, in certain political situations, transitional justice earns itself a bad reputation if it focuses too much on a particular set of violators to the exclusion of others. For example, if prosecutions focus entirely on a rebel group and not on members of the government, the entire process may be seen as politically skewed. This could undermine support for development initiatives that link themselves to transitional justice. By way of some conclusions and, and, to, and to start the question and answer period, proponents of justice for past atrocities cannot ignore the requirements of development for the whole country, nor expect that such requirements can be postponed until a later date while they settle accounts with perpetrators. The holistic approach to justice pays attention to all different forms of victimization from the recent past. It should not limit itself to giving satisfaction to the direct victims of murder, <coughs> imprisonment, or torture. Even if recognition of the indirect victimization of the totality of the poor and vulnerable in society cannot immediately be translated into specific interventions, the actions that are actually taken must be designed with them in mind as well as with the rights and interests of the direct victims. For example, reparations programs for the families of the murdered and disappeared should also include the larger number of those forced into exile or into internal displacement. And the quality and quantum of the reparations offered to all of them should be designed so that they do not give rise to new inequalities and perhaps resentments that may eventually lead to violence or delay the moment of reconciliation. Ultimately, Transitional justice cannot ignore the requirements of development because initiatives to reckon with the legacies of abuse need to have long-term effects and sustainable outcomes. And without the material basis that development can provide, those interventions will be short-lived and ineffectual and could well be counterproductive in the midterm. Of course, there are also good reasons why development initiatives in conflict or post-conflict situations should not ignore legitimate demands for justice. They were eloquently and at length spelled out in the 2004 report of the United Nations Secretary General, a report called Transitional Justice and the Rule of Law in Conflict and Post-Conflict Situations. The key words here are rule of law. The rule of law is a conditio sine qua non of effectiveness in development assistance because juridical security is indispensable to guarantee 
the success of that assistance. Everywhere, development policies need to, be, to build credible, independent, impartial institutions to protect civilians, to protect citizens, to resolve conflict, to prevent crime and capital flight. Development economists have recognized that cooperation assistance can easily be wasted if expenditures in infrastructure, in hospitals, in schools are not accom accompanied with an effort to establish institutions of governance that are credible, trustworthy, and functional. In turn, those institutions, courts, police, prosecutors, cannot expect to build their independence and credibility if they turn a blind eye to the gaping open wound in the fabric of society represented by impunity for the serious crimes of the recent past. There are many ways in which development practitioners and transitional justice proponents can nurture each other. I will mention one here. For years now, we have tried to meet the challenge of how to measure the effectiveness and true impact of transitional justice initiatives. As in all matters related to human rights, measuring impact is quite complicated. In addition, actions in pursuit of justice may be morally justified even if they do not reach the desired objectives. We have to be careful not to make claims about outcomes that we are not in a position to either document or empirically demonstrate. All the same, we recognize that transitional justice must demonstrate its worth and be subject to rigorous scrutiny by policymakers and stakeholders, both nationally and internationally. It seems to me that on this matter we can borrow a page from development practitioners and their experiences with a difficult but essential task of evaluating performance at different levels and adjusting policies in consequence. Is it possible to obtain convergence between justice and development? Is it a pipe dream to think that they are mutually reinforcing? The answers may be easy in the abstract, but our first duty is to recognize exactly how difficult convergence can be in practice. In the end, the only possible answer is that we do not have a choice to part company and go in our own ways. We must make convergence between justice and development a reality. And we must find ways to make them reinforce each other. The reason is that legitimate demands for both will coexist in the same territory and in the same time frame when war-ravaged states struggle towards reconstruction. On those occasions, a confrontational path could be ruinous for both development and justice. Perhaps we need to stop thinking of justice as short-term and development as long-term. What we do today in terms of justice will be legitimate if it has enduring effects in the creation of a basis for understanding and peaceful coexistence of communities previously engaged in armed conflict. For its part, even if development initiatives will only bear fruit in the long term, they will not be successful if they try to ignore the specific obstacles of the political contingencies of the here and now. In post-conflict situations, the legitimate justice demands of victims of war crimes and crimes against humanity are always at the center of the politics of the here and now. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. There's quite a few people who do development and a spattering of people who would say they cross into both camps. So um, I'm sure there'll be quite a, quite a few questions on the, on the basis of what you've said, uh, why. Who, who'd like to start us off? Someone who fits into that straddling camp. <laughs> TJ and development, <laughs> Brian. Which aspects, which approach 
reaction to that is that, you know, um, that transitional justice should not be, um, you know, imposed by development agencies uh, on societies that are not interested in it. Um, my, in my experience, they are always interested in it when they have the proper opportunity to be interested in it. But it's, and, and I reject the notion that transitional justice principles are somehow northern and western uh, conceits that we just impose on people. In my experience, the, the yearning for justice is, is so universal that you really cannot uh, discount that when victims have an opportunity to see justice done, they will insist on it. But I think, but, but the, the, the when is important here. And it's, it cannot be, you know, it, it would be uh, a very serious mistake to, to try to condition development assistance on, on transitional justice uh, without that being a, a, a really very uh, concerted and very uh, significant demand from the society itself. Uh, and once it is there, even, even there, that's not the end of the question because transitional justice is precisely so context and culturally specific that we can only speak about general principles, about uh, you know, struggle against impunity, about truth-telling, about reparations, and about uh, institutional reform. But the specific mechanisms and methods by which those values are realized are always con context and, and culturally specific, and they have to be born from the society itself. Now, what I would aspire to is for development initiatives to take heed of those demands and to accompany and perhaps even support those demands that are genuinely homegrown uh, and, and domestic. And if, if when, when that is the case, what I would object to is, you know, development uh, initiatives that very deliberately want to stay completely away from them and that run away from transitional justice initiatives because they are quote unquote political or, uh, or, 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 or because simply uh, the, the general premise or, or, or even presumption is that those things only complicate development uh, interventions. Uh, maybe they do complicate development interventions, but they complicate them in a, in a positive way, in the sense of giving those development interventions a better chance of succeeding even in their own development uh, objectives precisely because they take heed of the demands of justice in the society. Sorry if I sound a little rhetorical. <laughs> Should I recognize or, or do you? I got the wise point. One thing that kind of crossed my mind when I listened to you is that you seem to assume that, and it's probably not underpinning what you were saying, but Traditional justice may most cases be relevant to countries that need to be developed. So those that are already developed and not subjected to development somehow probably are among those that need least traditional justice. So I wonder if there is a space in your structure for um, interplay between traditional justice and economic fairness, I would put it, in those countries where which are already developed. 
And um, in your, this is my kind of question number one. The question <coughs> number two is in your own experience whether you've seen situations where the lack of transitional justice steps, if you like, in your experience has led directly to impediments to development. Okay. Um, for the first one, um, I think uh, you know, uh, as I tried to say, transitional justice is not is, is a kind of a misleading term of art that unfortunately we're stuck with. But the principles apply to to uh, situations that have nothing to do with transitions. And so, for example, you know, uh, in the the violations in the so-called global war on terror, the United States has the obligation also to investigate what happened, who gave the orders, uh, who was uh, taken uh, to black sites, and and, uh, and who suffered you know, torture in the uh, in the in the renditions, for example, who who kept people in prolonged arbitrary detention, all of those things that are transitional justice uh, principles apply equally to the most developed uh, nation in Earth. So. Uh, I don't by any means equate the obligations of the state to underdevelopment. Uh, but the, the fact is that, uh, in, in my experience at least with the International Center for Transitional Justice, the demands from the countries that we received uh, in a large measure came from countries that, um, that, uh, uh, that, that, both, uh, but that had both the problems of legacies of very serious human rights abuse and problems of development. And even in you know, mid-level countries that are half developed, uh, there are uh, serious you know, tensions and overlaps. Just I was trying to, to, to reflect in my paper. You know, there, are, there are things in which we can you know, see avenues of cooperation between initiatives of, and interventions of both but areas where there's uh, very serious tensions as well. So for example, in, uh, in, Latin, in Latin America, where a country can have, and sometimes have had, a very serious program of reparations, very universal to all the victims and all that, it can seriously affect the inequalities. For example, in, in my own country, in Argentina, the victims of human rights violations received very generous reparations. But most of them were among the, you know, maybe the working class, but upper working class and lower middle class. They were not among the poorest of the poor. And the country is now much more, much poorer than it was and much, much more unevenly developed than it was when these violations took place. And all of a sudden, we have people who have like a, like a boom. They, 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 they can invest. They can uh, you know, pay for the education of their children and all that, and a lot of people who are not direct victims are, are suffering, and we don't we don't have a serious answer to their development question. Now, fortunately, in Argentina, it hasn't become a source of tension, but it could, and if the if the, you know in, in other countries, it could be even much more serious. Um, your your second question was about uh, whether you have seen uh, situations. The absence of transitional steps have directly ah, right. impinged economic development. Well, I, I, generally, what I what I have, you know, uh, understood the, the the more clear intersection to be is that I understand many development practitioners 
to feel that uh, unless you have serious uh, independent and impartial institutions, particularly judicial, but also all other institutions of control of state power, of executive power, and of uh, resolution of disputes, uh, development investments are very fleeting because you cannot generate uh, the attraction of, of, in, uh, of, of capital, both internal and external, that guarantees the continuity of, uh, of, uh, of development initiatives. And if that's the case, I think transitional justice uh, goes also to that, the same heart of the, of, the, of the institutional problem of the country. Because the fact that we had you know, torture and disappearances and killings is because the institutions of control of the state have failed us miserably. If they failed us miserably in the protection of the human person, they also failed us miserably in the protection of economic, social, and cultural rights. And therefore, you know, my sense is that institutional reform is the key area where these two things overlap and where we can do a lot of favors to each other. Now, I'm, I'm not, um, you know, I don't want to be too optimistic because the reason, you know, capital favors independent uh, courts is not the same reason why we <laughs> defend it, but it is a convergence in a way. And now, uh, specific, uh, specific examples of when, uh, you know, I would have to think a little about uh, specific examples uh, that are much more to the point that I'm trying to make, but uh, but I'm sure they are there. Sorry. Well, it's something along the same lines in that uh, I understand the point that you make that uh, transitional justice needs to be justified in, in uh, and what, uh, I find that in my own work too. What, what I would like to know is where do you find can you tell me of one, the, the example you find most satisfying in the application of the principles of transitional justice leading to development? Mm. Well, I, I generally think that uh, uh, the, the research done by uh, Catherine Sicking and several other colleagues, because she has several, uh, several uh, articles published, um, I think some with you, Lee, right? Um, I think it's very significant in showing that the countries that have at least attempted to reckon with the legacies of the past uh, as honestly as possible have succeeded in, uh, one, in putting away the specter of return to unconstitutional order, to coup d'etat, but also have done, have performed better in the respect of human rights at a daily level. Uh, the expansion of democratic freedoms, uh, the exercise of democratic freedoms, and in general, a better sense of, uh, of, of the value of democracy. Uh, this is very important to me that I grew up in a generation that we, you know, we were so eager for solutions that we, we really underestimated democracy and thought that, you know, we could get the results that we wanted through means other than the democratic process. And we paid a very, very heavy cost for that. In, in our friends' lives, in, well, in the violence that we, you know, if, if, if we didn't create, we, you know, we had a role in, in perpetuating. And that, that those countries now 
the generations coming after value democracy and the rule of law as a way of solving the problems of society. <coughs> Not that they're satisfied with the way things are, but that they see that framework as being more conducive to, 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 uh, to a more just order. I think it's a great result of transitional justice mechanisms. The pending subject matter, if you will, is how do we make those societies more fair? Because quite frankly, even those societies that Catherine Sicking and others uh, recognize as performing better, they're still very unequal and very unfair, and they haven't found the key to, uh, to better distribution of wealth and all that. But that, and that's what I think we have to continue to explore uh, these, uh, these uh, relationships, because economic growth has been part of the, of the picture. It, it hasn't always been negative growth, on the contrary. Latin America, especially the last 10 years, has been uh, of what in Latin America called Chinese rates of growth. Not exactly right, but they're close. Uh, but growth, it, it's all growth without uh, justice, without distribution. Yeah. And we haven't really found the way to to distribute better, to 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 eliminate poverty, for example. And uh, so I think that that's why I kind of chose in my paper to to focus on the human development paradigm rather than just the growth paradigm. Um, but again, with a clear, you know, very modest uh, understanding that I have no clue as to how transitional justice can really you know, be expanded towards generating those conditions for a more fair society. Uh, that's where I think I urgent, I and others urgently need the assistance of development theorists. Yeah, um, I wanted to pose two additional dilemmas for this combination of development and transitional justice. And one is um, the resistance to transitional justice. Um, I would I would put to you that perhaps where countries have made the most improvement under this would be primarily authoritarian rule, you know, the cases of um, South Korea, um, Spain, even Chile, that there's a greater resistance and controversy around <coughs> even the notion of looking back in the past because of the support for those developmentalist dictatorships in those cases. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing for transitional justice to make inroads in the most successful cases. Uh, now, I, I don't think they would fit your model of development because, of course, they're very skewed in distributional terms, maybe less so Spain, but uh, in, in, maybe even less so Chile, but certainly in the case of, uh, you know, economic growth levels, these are countries that have done better. So that was one dilemma I wanted you to just speak about is the, you know, the, the, the developmental uh, improvements may actually work against transitional justice. The other one is in our, um, we did a little study of um, whether you could look at the cost of transitional justice and see whether countries on a kind of spectrum of socioeconomic development are more likely to choose expensive mechanisms like trials compared to inexpensive mechanisms like amnesties. And we found that when there was positive economic change, 
there's a greater likelihood to use trials, uh, whereas, you know, where there was no change or negative change, uh, countries chose amnesties. And it's not too surprising given that most countries are not having those costs uh, offset by international support. Um, this kind of goes to Bryony's question, though, that if that support were provided, um, wouldn't this maybe be a kind of cynical adoption of transitional justice? Um, uh, Yelena Subotic has written a book called Hijack Justice about Yugoslavia and adopting, you know, sort of accepting transitional justice <coughs> in exchange for aid and development in particular. So it's, uh, while the, the offsetting of costs from international sort of intervention in transitional justice might make it easier for countries to swallow that bitter pill of having to you know, hold expensive trials, it may also increase the sort of cynical adoption of these um, mechanisms. So just your thoughts about those dilemma. Well, I really can't speak much about uh, South Korea, but about the other examples that you gave, it's, uh, it's kind of an open question whether the growth of the economies in Chile and Spain are all owed to you know, brilliant policies by the dictatorships. I, I, I grant that uh, some reforms were, economic reforms were implemented early on. Uh, but I think the, the, the genius in those countries has been that the democratic forces have been very good about continuing some benefits of those policies while expanding freedoms and, to some extent, making efforts to expand distribution as well. So uh, I am not sure that I would concede to the, to the partisans of Pinochet and of Franco that they are, you know, what brought prosperity to those countries. Uh, second... But uh, I mean, whether it's a fact or not, it's a perception oh, that exists. It, it's, and an it argument. it's an argument that is made all the time, but yes. we don't have to accept. But it does create that resistance to transitional justice is the point, not... Well, okay, but, in, but that resistance can be overcome. And in, in, in the case of Chile, it has been overcome. You know, we all thought that they were going very slowly with, uh, with justice when, when democracy started. But the fact remains that today, Chile and Argentina are the two countries that have put behind bars more perpetrators of abuse than any country around. There are literally 150 or so uh, high-ranking officers of, of, of the army and of the police of Chile who are serving sentences and many more awaiting, awaiting trial. So, and there's been a very thorough truth-telling exercise, two of them, not one, and reparations. Uh, they are you know, you can discuss whether they are generous enough or not, but they're very universal, they're very complete. And uh, about institutional reform, they, they didn't need to go that deep into institutional reform because the army in Chile and the police in Chile were pretty disciplined. I mean, they were mostly the instrument of Pinochet and a, and a, a small number of people. They were not, you know, uh, cut across in all segments by very corrupt and very authoritarian and very brutal people, like was the case in other armies in, in, in the Americas. And the same with Spain. I mean, the case of Spain was thrown at us, proponents of transitional justice, as why, would you, why do you want to revisit the past? You know, Spain had a very successful transition to democracy precisely by ignoring uh, everything about the past. And the fact is that, you know, we see the 
the debate raging today. Uh, whether this is the right moment to do it or whether it should have been done earlier or not, the point is that the past does not go away, that you just cannot sweep it under the rug, and you shouldn't. And sooner or later, the victims and the families of the victims, and this is very later because we're talking about 100,000 disappeared in the early years of the Franco dictatorship, but we're talking also about 1940, and it doesn't go away. And and even the, the, the judges that want to prosecute uh, Baltasar Garzon for trying to open a few graves cannot, you know, cover the sun with their fingers, as we say in Spanish, because that's a reality that is going to be present in the society of Spain, whether they like it or not. Is it going to affect the economic uh, development of Spain? I don't think so. I mean, there are obviously very serious difficulties, but I don't think they have anything to do with, with uh, transitional justice initiatives. Uh, is, is Spain going to be a better country if transitional justice initiatives are understood? I firmly believe so. And of course, Franquistas have the right to have their opinion that it won't be. But, uh, uh, but I think, quite frankly, that's an open question and one that they cannot uh, seek to hide anymore. We've got time probably for a, a couple more questions. Um, when, when one thinks about economic, social, cultural rights and the way they have been uh, developed in recent years, for example, this idea of underlying determinants of each one of the economic, social, cultural rights, core elements of the rights, and so on, uh, and the idea that rights are meant to be indivisible, interdependent, etc., uh, that certainly should have an impact on the way we understand the principles of transitional justice as far as if you say, for example, that we usually deal with right to life, right to human treatment, because those are the rights that are bridged through this process of transition, for example, well, before the transition, yes, uh, and we create these particular mechanisms to respond to that, well, the fact that the international community seems to be moving towards an understanding that these rights are indivisible surely should have an impact on the way we understand and should proceed to deal with these classic mechanisms. So I guess that what I'm saying is, even if you say that these mechanisms seem to be insufficient to respond to economic, social, cultural rights, because they are as we understand them today, there seems to be a challenge to the way we understand those mechanisms if we are to be truly faithful to the idea that these civil and political rights and economic, social, cultural rights are indivisible. What do you think about that? And for example, what would be the impact on the way we conceive these mechanisms uh, in the images to come if we were to be more, uh, put them more together? Yeah, well, I, as I think I said in my paper, this is a raging debate in transitional justice practitioners, you know, how, how much we should be focusing on redress for violations of economic, social, and cultural rights. Um, I think it's very healthy to have that debate, and it's very important that we think about it very seriously and thoroughly. But I don't think it's, uh, uh, the, the, the remedy is not that easy to say, well, you know, from now on, uh, if we're going to prosecute a murderer, we have to also prosecute somebody who instituted bad economic policies. Or if we're going to have a truth commission, we have to make sure that the mandate includes uh, responsibilities for violations of economic, social, and cultural rights. I think that would be a facile solution to the, to the problem. Uh, and as I, as I think I also said, the fact is that it's a, uh, it, it is an unfair characterization to say that, say, truth commissions uh, busy themselves only with civil and political rights and ignore 
uh, economic and social and cultural rights. They actually, the best examples of them, make a big effort to uh, understand the violations in the social and economic context in which they happen and to highlight the need for, in the recommendations, for solutions that not only redress the immediate wrongs but redress the underlying context in which these violations happen. But whether more can be done, yes. But my, my feeling about the the relationship between civil and political rights more broadly and, so, and economic, social, and cultural rights beyond transitional justice is that we do very little favor to economic, social, and cultural rights if we're always saying, you know, for everything we do on civil and political rights, we, do, we have to do exactly the same thing for economic, social, and cultural rights. It actually kind of assumes that economic, social, and cultural rights don't have a life of their own, that, we, that they are kind of dependent instead of interdependent dependent on how well we have managed to respond to civil and political rights violations. I think, quite frankly, that the, the, the interdependence and I always remember, I uh, forget the, the three eyes, but uh, I read them. That's why I said them well today. But, uh, the, the fact that they are interdependent also means that they have, uh, if they are uh, of equal value of civil and political rights, they probably have to have their own mechanisms for protection, for fulfillment, for promotion, uh, and, uh, and even for just, uh, justiciability. Um, and we are making, I mean, the international human rights movement is making some inroads into that by, uh, as you mentioned, the, uh, the notion of the core elements of the right, uh, the, the you know, path-breaking decisions by the South African and the Indian Supreme Courts, for ex I mean, Constitutional Court in the case of South Africa, on how to make certain economic, social, and cultural rights justiciable. They have their own, um, they have their own logic and their own dynamic, and they have, they, that's the way it should be. Um, but that transitional justice can do more to have a much more creative way of looking at violations of economic, social, and cultural rights, I completely agree with. What that more is, is where, you know, I think we need to continue discussing. Well, I would, uh, from what abuse the chair's position, um, and ask you a question about agency <coughs> and actors. Um, and in this sort of quest for greater complementarity between transitional justice and development, <coughs> I'm wondering, in terms of the agents um, of these processes, how these things actually fit together, and I wonder, particularly whether you're talking about single organizations or single agents actually practicing these two dimensions or whether it's a call for greater collaboration between organizations of transitional justice and organizations of development. And that the reason I ask that is actually to do with two of the cases that you mentioned very briefly but perhaps didn't go into, into um, kind of detail. One is the, the, the war on terror situation or specifically upper grade where we had an organization like the Red Cross that had access to prisons, camps, etc., and had a very clear idea of the violations that were taking place, but because their own mandate of neutrality had to keep their mouth shut, um, so that actually it was much later that we found out exactly what was going on. And still, the quest for justice goes on. So there was a real dilemma there for an organization like the Red Cross between their development commitments and perhaps the question of justice and human rights. The other one, of course, is the Darfur situation and the humanitarian agencies that were kicked out for either actual or perceived collab <coughs> pardon me, collaboration with the ICC 
And those conditions cannot be created by ignoring the recent past. They, uh, just a, a, a clear example, how do you expect uh, people who have recently suffered violation uh, of their rights by the police to trust the police if they see no change in the way the police uh, operates? And worse, they see that they are rewarded with impunity. And, and the, same, the same with courts and, and prosecutors and, and the military. If you, uh, one important aspect of the rule of law uh, is, and, and, and of transitional justice writ large, is to generate uh, citizen confidence in institutions. And in, in, in situations of transition from very, uh, and legacies of very serious human rights abuse, you cannot expect people to have confidence in those institutions unless they see them at least attempting seriously to deal with those legacies of abuse. So that, that's where I think that uh, development and transitional justice uh, uh, you know, can be seen at intention in some <coughs> moments, uh, but, uh, but they, they, they are pursuing the same objective in the end, and, they, and that objective can be realized with the support of both um, uh, practitioners or agencies, if you will, but it's not important that, uh, say, I don't know, the Swedish Cooperation Agency cooperate with the ICTJ. I mean, that's not, I mean, that's not important. What, what, is it, what is important is for international cooperation agencies to work with the local people who have decided that they want a truth-telling exercise, with the prosecutors that decided that they are going to prosecute, even against the odds of all the resistance that they're going to face. Instead, what we see is a lot of... Um, international agencies, and here I, I do want to wipe out the example of the Swedes, because that's not the case. Um, you see a lot of corporations and agencies running away from those conundrums very quickly, because, no, no, it's too political, it's too controversial, you know, we better go back to financing the, the building of hospitals. Ten years later, the hospital is not going to be there. So, thank you, and I really want to apologize that I have to take a train, so yes. otherwise I'd love to stay with you and continue to, to explore these things. Thank you very much. Uh, we have to get Juan to, to, to London, otherwise <laughs> there'll, there'll be trouble. But, uh, but Juan, thanks again for, uh, for being in, in the UK all this week and particularly being in Oxford with us.